Thank you, Pastor Dave, for that ministry and music. This morning, once again, we are going to take a look at life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 4.7 says, Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. And if you remember, under the sun refers to life from a worldly perspective. This time the look is at how dreadful and meaningless life is lived when it is lived all alone. What is the point of success if you have no one to share it with? One person has said we spend the first 40 years of life seeking success and the next 40 years seeking significance. We moved from last week a study on the oppressed and the fact that there was no one to comfort them to today the meaninglessness of people being all alone. The key verse is Ecclesiastes 4.8. There was a certain man without a dependent having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and is a grievous task. One of the best ways to get a view on our culture and our society is by looking at music, secular music. And uh, that which it uh, demonstrates uh, as to people's musings what they are what they are thinking. I'm going to use two different songs this morning, one now and then one in the middle of the service to give us a view of life under the sun, a secular perspective on life. And the first is on being alone. And I would like you to really look at the words that uh, John Lennon and uh, Paul McCartney wrote to Eleanor Rigby.
All the lonely people, where do they all come from? That's what we want to think about this morning. Uh, Where do lonely people come from? Uh, I think it's a really poignant statement when uh, they write that uh, Father Mackenzie wiping his dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave, no one was saved uh, because no one was there. And uh, I don't know how much the Beatles understand about salvation. But uh, it does demonstrate that here is a person who had no influence on others. And uh, the sadness of their being alone (coughs) when they died, and also the meaninglessness of their life, because they did not affect anyone. I don't know if you've ever been at a funeral where virtually no one ever uh, came, but it certainly is sad. I had a high school friend of mine. And uh, a number of years ago, his mother died, and I, I heard about it. Uh, I haven't kept in contact with him over the years, but I heard about the fact that his, his mother died, and I thought, you know, I, I really ought to go to that, that funeral. And I was so glad that I did, because when I got there, it was just him and his wife and the minister. That was it for the funeral. So it was him, his wife, myself. And the minister. And uh, what a sad, sad funeral that was. And uh, after the uh, service, the interment was just across the street, the cemetery of the church. And we walked uh, across the, uh, the road. And all of a sudden, my friend reached over and he just took my hand and held it. And I saw the tears streaming down his face. How sad. How sad. To be that alone. Uh, the Beatles wrote out of a real experience in the United Kingdom, 200 funerals a month go unattended. Where there are no relatives, the local authority pays for a basic cremation. Often the deceased's ashes are disposed in unmarked graves and their stories remain untold. 16 million people in the United Kingdom, live alone. And uh, we might think that in today's society, uh, uh, being alone is no longer an an issue. We might think that with Facebook and other social networks and media, that people are more involved in each other's lives than ever. But in actuality, nothing could be further than the truth. Many times that's only in perception, not in reality. Someone might have 200 friends on Facebook, but yet have no personal involvement in any other person's daily life. And so people are alone. And this morning, our theme is we should seek to live our lives in community and fellowship as opposed to being all alone. Ecclesiastes 4.7, if you would look at that. Passage with me if you're not there yet. Ecclesiastes 4, 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. Solomon begins by looking at a man who was all alone. Verse 8. There was a certain man without a dependent. There was a certain man without a dependent. The uh, King James gives us the most literal translation of this verse. And it's very helpful. For Ecclesiastes 4.8 in the King James reads as follows. There is one alone and there is not a second. 
There is one alone, and there is not a second. That's a very literal translation of verse 8. And it's helpful because it points out the contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. So verse 2, verse 9 talks about how better it is for there to be two, not just one. Verse 8 says there was one alone. There was not a second. He was by himself. Now the question is, why was this man alone? Sometimes people have very little control over their circumstances. And there are situations that are just beyond our ability to change. For example, if you look at verse 8, it says, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother. Now, that can happen to no fault of of one's own, that uh, you simply don't have any offspring. You don't have any siblings. There are valid reasons for some people to be alone. And that certainly is a difficult situation. But it's really not what we are going to address this morning because it's not really the focus of this particular passage. The focus is on people who make life's decisions that result in their being alone. That they are acting in certain ways that creates a situation where now they are all alone. For if you notice in verse 8, it goes on to state, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Here was a man who was engaged in work, consumed with getting ahead and getting wealthy and getting possessions. And he never stopped to ask the very basic question, why am I doing all this? How is this benefiting anybody else? Why would I spend my time in this way? Now, if you have a King James or an NAS, it says, He never asked, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Curiously, if you have an NIV, it translates this, For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Uh, I don't really know why they chose to translate it that way. Um, they, the NIV tends to translate not literally, but in terms of thought or conception, trying to get the basic idea across. Uh, and in actuality, in doing so, uh, they've really changed and flipped this on its head from what uh, the King James and NAS says. And uh, I think that the NAS and the King James uh, do the better job of translating that particular verse. The point is being that he never asked that question. He never gave it forethought. He was just living his life, going about accumulating his riches. The reason that he was all alone is that there was no end to his work. Verse 8. Yet there was no end to all 
his labor. Uh, He never called it quits. He never stopped working. He never took a breath. He was a workaholic. And he sacrificed family on the altar of work. You see, in this particular instance, the reason he has no family is because he, there was no end to his labor. That his job, his career, his work was more important to him than was a family. And never took time to ask the question, where is this all leading me? Some people choose not to have a family in order to obtain a career. They make a conscious choice. They say to themselves, uh, I have a particular goal in mind for my career and family is just going to get in the way. And I don't really want to uh, be bogged down with a a spouse, with with children. Uh, I want to have the opportunity to go and and do my thing. And, And they choose not to have a family. Others postpone a family until their career is better established. And they say to themselves, I, I want to have a family someday, but just not now. There's too much for me to do. There's, there's a, a lot that I'd like to accomplish. Uh, there are things that uh, I want to accumulate. Uh, I want to have a, a better a standard of living. And so they decide, not now. Someday, but not now. And still others have a family but they ignore their family in order to further their career. They have a husband, they, they have children, but they're never home. And they don't have any time for their children. They don't have any time to devote to other people. Here's our second song. There was a song popular in the 1970s. It was released in 1974. And it was nominated for a Grammy Award that year. So it was obviously a song that uh, struck a chord with a lot of people. People bought the album. People listened to the, to the record. It's one that uh, impacted a great many. This song is about a father who is too busy to spend time with his son. Who, nonetheless, the son admires him. And wants to be just like him. When the son grows up, he is too busy with his own work and family to spend any time with his aging father. The son, in other words, has turned out just like his father, though in ways that the father regrets. You probably, uh, if you're of older age, know the song uh, Cats in the Cradle. Cats in the Cradle. And the song is partially autobiographical, because Harry Chapin, who is credited with actually writing the song, although technically Harry Chapin wrote the the music and his wife wrote the lyrics, interestingly enough, but she doesn't usually get credit, but she wrote the lyrics. But uh, Harry Chapin's father was a musician as well. And uh, being a musician, he was on the road all the time and didn't have any time to be at home with the, the family. And it greatly impacted uh, Harry Chapin. Well, Harry Chapin's wife just gave birth to a child named Josh. And she was very concerned 
that her husband was going to follow in his father's footsteps. Harry Chapin was on the road uh, with a music career as well. And she was very concerned that he would have no time for his child, just like Harry Chapin had no uh, time for, for him. And so, she wrote the lyrics to this song to remind her husband of the importance of family. Silver spoon, fill the boy blue, man. Bring it up, 
I decided to use these two songs because our text is about life under the sun. About life without God in perspective. And here are two songs. As far as I know, these individuals do not make any profession of faith. Uh, They don't make any bones about uh, being dedicated to the things of God. But there is just this observation that fallen mankind can see the difficulties associated with being alone. Well, if that is true of mankind that doesn't know Christ, how much more should we be able to understand the importance of having proper priorities? But notice with me in verse 8. In our passage, the man who was all alone was never satisfied with what he had accumulated. Ecclesiastes 4.8 There was a certain man without a dependent, have neither a son nor a daughter, yet there was no end to all his toil. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with his riches. That is striking. For it is not talking about his stomach. It's not talking about his appetite, his physical appetite. Um, Our physical appetites are relatively easy to satisfy. Um, You get to the place where you've eaten a a large Thanksgiving dinner and uh, you're stuffed. You can't eat one more bite. If someone was to put it before you, you just would turn away from it because you've just eaten your fill. But here are eyes that are not satisfied. You see, we can fill our stomachs, but not fill our eyes. What is striking to me here is the imagery. And that is wealth that is accumulated with its own, own value, its only value is to be looked at. To be looked at. To be admired. To, to bring it out. And, and just see that you have it. You see, this man does not need what he possesses. He does not consume what he possesses. He does not put it to use. He merely looks at it. He prizes it. He delights in it. He collects it, if you will. And there are a lot of people that collect things that are not good for anything other than just to look at and and to admire and say, that's beautiful. And some people never get to the place where their collection is complete. And they want to have more and more and more of them, where they have hundreds of different things, which all they can do is look at them. And as a result, he sacrifices friendships in order to obtain wealth. Notice verse 8. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? The person denies himself of what is good. What is good? In the NAS, it says, 
that he deprives himself of pleasure. NIV, I'm depriving myself of enjoyment. And the King James, which again in this instance is the most literal, says, I breathe my soul of good. Of good. Good is the most literal translation of this verse. Good. But good in Hebrew has the same breadth of definition that good does in English. Good can be understood in a number of ways. We can talk about things that taste good, that's pleasurable. We can talk about a car that runs good, meaning that it is reliable, it is appropriate, it it does its job. We can talk about that which is morally good. And I think that we need to keep the breadth that's in Ecclesiastes 4.8, for this man is depriving himself of good. That might be pleasure. That might be what is appropriate. That even might be what is useful. And you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be rich in order to deprive yourself of something that you're just glad to have. My father grew up extremely poor. Uh, He came from a very large family. And uh, the family couldn't support all the children they had during the Depression era. And uh, my father was uh, sent to work for another family on their farm. And so he didn't live with his parents Uh, He lived with this elderly couple, and he was their laborer, if you will. And uh, he basically got food and clothing as a result. And Well, to make a long story short, he just was extremely poor. And uh, he worked hard to try to get ahead and have his own farm. But uh, all of his early life, my dad was extremely poor. And uh, he never talked about it much. But I, I, uh, my mother would say things from time to time, and she said, uh, you know, uh, when we would complain or gripe about something, uh, say dinner or what have you, and she said, you know, your father never felt comfortable to go to a refrigerator and open the door and take something out of that refrigerator until he was 21 years old, because it wasn't his to take. He wasn't a part of the family. If he was offered it, he could take it. But he just couldn't go up to a refrigerator and open the door. That had a profound influence on my, on my father in ways that uh, are, are very un, unusual. Uh, he was a generous man, but yet what he had, he really guarded because he didn't have much. And after my father died, we were cleaning out his stuff. And some of the stuff that we found was pretty unusual, I thought. One of them was, my dad used to uh, have a work, he didn't wear work gloves, he wore work mittens. They were really, they were were mittens, but they were uh, made for very cold weather. He was on the farm, worked outdoors, and, and and his mittens always looked terrible. And so we would buy him, that was a habitual Christmas present that we would get him new work mittens. Well, after he died, 
I found ten work mittens that uh, he never wore. He always wore the ones that were were uh, rotten and falling apart and stuff. And he just put those away for a rainy day in which he may want to use them. Well, that's one thing. Another thing I found was a box of chocolate candy that uh, he was given one Easter that was probably 25 years old. Stink. Couldn't eat it. I mean, you wouldn't even want to look at it anymore, but, but he had it, but he refused to use it. He refused to take advantage of it. He deprived himself of the joy of eating that candy. I don't know why. Because it was more important to keep it than it was to use it. Well, in this passage, it's about people who deprive themselves of what is good, what is useful, and what is needed. And the primary application is in depriving oneself of relationships. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. It's not good for a person to be on their own. I'm going to make a, a helper that is suitable for him. I would ask you, what life decisions are you making that can result in your being all alone? What course of action might one be on that would result in one day being all alone? What are we doing that might destroy relationships? What is it that might be distancing us from our children? Or from our brothers, our our sisters, our aunts, our uncles? And our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And then positively, what are we doing to foster and promote our relationship and interdependence. What are we doing to promote that interaction with our children, our adult children? What are we doing to promote it within our extended family? What are we doing with our brothers, our our sisters, our aunts, our uncles? What involvement are we having in their lives? And then we can talk about the lives of God's people. For now, Solomon speaks of the benefits of not being alone. The first part was on the difficulties, now the benefits. Four illustrations. I'm going to go through them very quickly because they are incredibly easy to understand. Four illustrations of the benefits of not being alone. First, the benefits of not being alone regarding work. Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. They have a good reward. Wages. The work will have paid off. And here there's a play on words. For it stands in, in uh, antithesis to verse 8. 
Where here the man labored, same word, but there was no end to his toil. It, it never got him anywhere. The person who is laboring with someone else, that person's getting a good return. They're getting a good reward. There is an end to their labor. There is a purpose in what they are doing. Let us be mindful. Let us be careful that we are investing ourselves in other people. Not just ourselves. Not just trying to get ahead. But in our families. The second benefit of not being alone is regarding help. Verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. So we can understand that quite literally or, or we can understand that metaphorically. Literally. If you fall down and you fall into a pit, it might be very hard for you to get out of that pit by yourself. But if there is someone there to reach out and give you a hand or throw you a rope or, or whatever, you can get up. Or maybe if you fall down on the ice and you really hurt yourself, you need someone else to come over and pick you up. The, true, the same is true metaphorically. To pick one another up in terms of encouraging one another emotionally or encouraging one another spiritually. Last week we saw that the oppressed had no one to comfort them. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 1. Well, here the idea is that when you fall down, you have someone to comfort you. You have someone to pick you up. The psalmist talks about children being a, a heritage, a blessing of the Lord. And blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. It's an imagery of life's hardships and difficulties. And the children are pictured as arrows. Well, if you've got an enemy coming at you and uh, you've got uh, a bow and you have an arrow, you can shoot it at that enemy. And now have another enemy, you can shoot it at that enemy. Now you can shoot it at that enemy. The more arrows you got, the better off you are. And in Psalms, it's talking about life, that the person who has a number of children have a number of resources. And those of you who are only children know the difficulty of caring for aged parents. It's nice when you can share those responsibilities. It's nice when you have someone else that can enter into the care of those parents or enter into those responsibilities. But when it's all on your shoulders, it's more work. It's more difficult, and sometimes things can't be done the way that you'd like to do them. Uh, you need help. Third, the benefits of not being alone regarding comfort. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Certainly in the Old Testament era, this was very common. Uh, when uh, there weren't the heating... Uh, equipment that there is today. You couldn't heat your house and so on. People slept together simply to keep warm. Uh, and uh, new, in the New England era, Jonathan Edwards got himself into real trouble. Uh, people eventually voted Jonathan Edwards out of the church. And uh, believe it or not, the primary issue was that uh, Jonathan Edwards started preaching against bundling. 
B-U-N-D-L-I-N-G, bundling. Uh, and bundling was the uh, practice of people sleeping together to keep warm. And he was saying that men and women that weren't married shouldn't be sleeping together to keep warm. And uh, reportedly they weren't having sex, but uh, Jonathan Edwards thought, well, maybe they were. Anyway, he started preaching against bundling. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and uh, Jonathan Edwards was put out of his church for preaching against bundling. But here, you see, this passage is saying two people can keep warm. One person by themselves, that's that's more difficult. The benefits of not being alone regarding protection. Ecclesiastes 4.12, if one overpowers him who is alone, two can resist him. Again, that's common sense. We know that to be true. That if you're all alone, you're a much more uh, a target than if you are together. Maybe you saw that tragedy in uh, York just this past week where a teenage girl was walking home from school and she was accosted by uh, four boys. And um, she was able to fight her, her way loose and uh, was able to escape these, these boys, for which we are, are thankful. But the newscast entered with a plea that if you're going to walk home, please don't walk home alone. Walk home with a partner, was how this newscast ended. You see, it's common sense that uh, if you're with somebody else, it's easier to defend yourself than if you are all alone. And then we have Ecclesiastes 4.12, the end. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. There are a number of commentators here that uh, introduce God into the equation and talk about how two people are strong, but with God on your side, you are invincible. While it is certainly true that we should be relying upon God, and how we should look to him for our strength and health, probably it is simply saying two are better than one and three are better than two. And four are better than three and five are better than four. The idea is that in company, in union, in communion, we are far better off than we are alone. And if there's ever a time in society that this has to be heard, it's today. Because people are alone. People are alone. They have no one to care for them. They have no one to watch over them. They have no one to protect them. They have no one to share their lives with. And there is this strange sensation. There is this oddity because of the technological age that we are in that you can feel like you're connected with other people. You can tweet and know what people are doing all day long, but have no real personal involvement with that person. No one taking them a meal. No one helping to push the wheelchair. Nobody actually engaged in that life. So there's the appearance of loads of involvement 
when in actuality, people are more distant from each other than at any time past. That's why we need nursing homes so badly. Because there is no one to care. There is no home to put them in other than a nursing home. I'm not saying anything against nursing homes. That's not my point. My point is we need each other. So, conclusion and application. First, we need to take into consideration how we are living our lives. Because we don't want to end up all alone. We should guard our relationships. People are more important than things. We've got to keep that before us constantly. People are more important than things. All too often, it's not. It's not. Pastor Weller uh, told me a story when he was uh, on the... the, uh, He's an EMT and arrived at a scene when there was a car crash and they had to use the jaws of life to, to get this woman out. And her husband arrived on the scene and uh, he just looked at this horrific, tangled mess and his wife uh, trying to be freed from the car, using the jaws of life, bleeding profusely, obviously very close to death. And he just walked around muttering, my car, my car, I just bought the car. Concerned for the car, but not his wife. That is the extreme. But if we're not careful, we can be more concerned about things than we are our own children. We can be more concerned about possessions than we are about about relationships. When we are despairing, it is not time to be alone. Sometimes people distance themselves from others at the very time that they need other people. I don't understand that, but it happens. People, when they're depressed, get into a cocoon kind of mode, and they cut themselves off from other people. That's the time that you really need other people. That's the time in which you really need to be talking, engaging, and fellowshipping with with others. It's not the time to be alone. We need to gather together. With others. And as we think about this in a church setting, I would say to you that as the people of God, it is absolutely essential that we gather together. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking or assembling ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You see the converse? It's not forsaking assembling together. It's not just talking about coming to worship services, although that's involved. The converse is failing to assemble, which results in a failure to encourage one another. The reason we gather together for corporate worship is for the involvement in each other's lives. Involvement in each other's lives. So, I'll end with just applications about involvement in the life of the church. Don't cut yourself off from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't live a spiritual life of loneliness. 
Don't be a Christian on your own. Don't make decisions that will result in your ultimately being all alone. Such as, number one, dashing out of here as soon as you can. Just getting out of here and getting in your car without taking time to stop and talk, shake hands, and converse with other people. Resist that temptation. Maybe you want to get home to cook a meal. Maybe you got a place you got to go. Maybe there's an activity that has to be done. Guard relationships. And take the time to stand around and talk to people after church. Be sure to avail yourself of the opportunities that the church gives you for fellowship. This is Fellowship Sunday, which means that immediately following this worship service, there's going to be a meal that's held over here in Fellowship Hall, where people are going to gather together and sit around tables and eat. That's important. That's important. Don't cut yourself off from that. Now, you know, maybe you've got a good reason. You're not here today. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying you've got to be here this Sunday. But what I am saying to you is, that's important. And if you never do that, if you never stay, commit yourself. Maybe you can't today. Maybe you weren't planning on it today. We've got enough food. You can stay. Don't worry about it. But if you're saying, I can't, i got to go, well, next time. Think about staying. Think about being involved in other people's lives. Just think about it. We have a church of, say, 300 people. How many of those people do you know? How many people can you name? How many people are you aware of their life situation, what they do for work? How many of them would you feel comfortable in picking up a phone if you were in trouble and saying to them, brother, sister, would you pray for me? Could you come over? I have a problem. I have to go to the hospital. Would you know who to call? Or at that moment, would you be all alone? You see, you can be in a church of 300 people and still be all alone. You can be in a crowd and be all alone. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook and be all alone. Some things we have no control over. Other things are a result of our own decisions. Choose to be together. Choose to be involved in other people's lives. Choose to encourage one another in the faith. Choose to practice your Christian faith in a communal way. For it is sad to be alone. Take the initiative. Don't wait for someone to come up to you. 
You go up to them. Take the initiative. I am not going to be alone. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Uh, Help us to want to be involved in other people's lives, not just in a selfish way, so that there is someone there to help when I need to be picked up, but, uh, Lord, that I'm there to help pick somebody else up, too. That it might be a give-and-take situation. That it would really be iron sharpening iron. That we'd be there for each other. That we would have people to call upon. And people can call upon us. Oh, Lord, create within us a, a true fellowship. A true brother and sister relationship. Uh, Lord, uh, cause us to see what we may be doing that is causing us to be all alone, distant, and feel like we really don't know anyone and aren't close to anyone. Uh, Lord, uh, help us uh, to pinpoint those decisions and purpose to do differently. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.